Once again, wrestling fans, it's another edition of Charting the Territories, the first edition in the calendar year of 2022. My name is Al Getz, and with me, as always, on the monthly Charting the Territories podcast is my co-host, the co-host to the stars, Mr. John Boucher. Al, hello, happy happy New Year, happy 2022. 2022. It's a tongue twister. You really don't think it is, but when you try saying 2022, it, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, you got to think about it. Well, you know, and the, and the big thing was, how, how are you? the big thing was for the last couple of years, everyone said when you write checks to be sure to fill in the full year, more so in 2020, because if you just fill out the last two digits, someone can go and then add, you know, either predate or postdate and perhaps cause some shenanigans. I don't know if you write oh, yeah. checks anymore. I write about one a month still to this very day. I, I finally, this past year, my building uh, went for a, uh, you know, an e-pay option for, for the, the monthly, the monthly rent and fees. So that was, that was the last check that I, uh, that I've written. I actually have to write one. I'm planning on writing one tomorrow. Actually, I have to go pay for uh you got to pay, pay me my, for you got to pay me my fee for allowing you on here, much like a, a certain ring announcer for a certain darling indie promotion allegedly pays his way to commentate on shows. Uh, I make John pay me for the privilege of co-hosting this podcast with me. Well, I gotta I gotta get that that pen ready for tomorrow. Yes, exactly. Well, so now this month. John, we're going to be looking at the first quarter of 1966 in the McGurk territory. So we're going to be spending most of our time on a time period that's that's before uh, my, you know, sort of wheelhouse uh, mm-hmm. as far as knowledge. So we're going to go way back. We're featuring a tag team feud that had already headlined a few other territories, plus One car accident leads to some confusing circumstances regarding the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title, while a second car accident in the territory leads to the inadvertent identification of two masked wrestlers. Plus, and John, you don't know about this, but we Uh. may have uncovered new information regarding the saga, the curious case of Mr. Zabo. What? This is some late-breaking news. Wow. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And John, uh, you're the one that found it. That's what's even more amazing Me? about this. Yeah. So we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. We're also going to talk okay. a little bit about some modifications to how I present the quarterly data on our blog, which is at chartingtheterritories.com, including rankings. In addition to the roster chart with the spot ratings, there's now rankings like a top. It's not necessarily a top 10. It depends on how many wrestlers are in the territory, uh, but it's rankings. And then there's also a new feud length in weeks statistic. And what better way to take a deep dive into a new stat called feud length in weeks than by looking at one of the longest running feuds in wrestling history. In fact, I think it's still going on. Jerry Lawler versus Bill Dundee. We'll talk briefly about the third quarter of 1977 in Jerry Jarrett's territory, which featured 11 straight weeks of Lawler versus Dundee in Memphis. That's a lot. Have you ever seen uh, Lawler and Dundee footage? I'm sure you have. Do you know which which matches oh, you yeah. have seen? Um, 
the the one I watched most recently, I think, was the what is it, the Texas Death Match, the one that's like a ridiculously large number amount of falls, uh, like twenty seven falls or something like that. Um, there's a barbed wire match they too that they have those two guys have that I love, um, because unlike most barbed wire matches, it's 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 not super gory like a like a Joe LaDuke, Carlos Colon type. Ooh. You know, yeah. uh, barbed wire matches, it's there. They're actually spend 98% of the match not touching the barber barbed wire, which is, uh, you know, I would expect nothing less from those two guys to be able to work a, a barbed wire match in a smart, in a psychologically engrossing way. Yeah. And, and make the fans want, want it even more and really build up yep. the anticipation for that. <laughs> But we're going to kick things off, John, as we always do with shit John bought me off eBay. Listeners oh, yeah. recall that each and every month, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money, of which 10 is his, you know, payoff to me for, you know, uh, for co-hosting. So really, it's, you know, just 40. <laughs> um, but he buys me random things off eBay. Now, in the past, we've done a live unboxing on this podcast. I have decided... Not to do it that way. I have already opened all three items. I think doing it off the cuff, I don't think I'm very good uh, as far as describing items that I haven't seen before. But if I actually get to see them ahead of time, I can do a better job of describing them. So that's what I've decided to do uh, for now. We'll see how it goes. And John, you really uh, stretched my money pretty thin this month because you got three items. Three things, yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've, it's it's my, my my New Year's resolution was to uh, search out some deals. Well, we've got some deals. The first item that John got me off eBay is a book of poems by a poet slash writer by the name of Timothy Timothy Gager. That's spelled G A G E R. Perhaps it's Gager or Gager or Gager. Who knows? But the name of the book, Chief J Strongbow, is real. So now I, I leafed through this a little bit, and I believe that there's only one poem uh, about wrestling, <laughs> but it's a poem and uh, it's a book in general, uh, just about talking about the history of Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, uh, and appropriation and that sort of thing. So it's uh, really interesting stuff. But I'm going to read that first poem, which is oh, Chief J. Strongbow is Real. His war dance began when wounded. Desperate, he'd rally. Proud warrior. The show is real, damn it. The Native American will make that comeback. Always fighting. Harder when down. Oh, always fighting harder when down. Then full of fist chops, he'd punch. Handsome Jimmy Valiant. The rival's white hair was bloody and disheveled. Valiant was formerly a partner. As champions, they fought Mr. Fuji and Professor Toru Tanaka. A tag team battle of racism. The bout was over when we enacted the Indian Removal Act, colonial conflict, disease, discrimination, because that was too real, damn it. The money is what it's about. Value. Last year at Standing Rock, junior wrestler Delaney Lester won the 152-pound class in a pin. No one will remember Delaney. And who is Luke Joseph Scarpa? He was a fake, an actor within the theater of our, within the theater of our absurdity. It's all fake. Chief J. Strongbow will beat the white man. 
<laughs> so there you go. Chief J Strongbow is wow. real. Wow. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the poems, and I'm looking forward to wearing the next item you got me, although I probably shouldn't. <laughs> it is a Dr. Death headband. Uh, you yes. know, what, what we wore in the 80s to get to keep sweat out of our eyes. Now, do we yeah. know, was this ring worn? No, I, I don't uh, think so. I don't believe so. Oh, because I thought it would have been great if it was ring worn because that meant I had Dr. Death's sweat. And perhaps oh, yeah. could and, and perhaps I could extract, you know, his DNA from DNA. the sweat. Yeah. Oh, Especially God. when you consider what the third item is. But oh, back to this headband. So it's very it's a white headband and it just in red letters very simply says Dr. Death. And that's yes. the extent of it. But the third item <laughs> is a napkin. But it's not yeah. just any napkin, John. Not just any napkin. No. It is a napkin that apparently was uh, used as a place setting or what have you at the inauguration of Governor mm -hmm. Jesse Ventura. Yes. Now, this appears to yes. be unused. And, and really, this is a shame because I was thinking if the headband had Dr. Death's sweat on it and this napkin had, you know, just if, if Jesse had used it to wipe, you know, his, his lips or something and yeah, we had his yeah, spit yeah. on it. I could combine the DNA of these two and, and create a muscle-bound wrestling machine with the toughness and in-ring skill of Dr. Death and the promo and interview ability of Jesse Ventura. And I could have created wow. the world's biggest wrestling superstar, perhaps, combining the DNA yeah. of Dr. Death and Jesse the body. But alas, there is no sweat. There is no spit. Yeah. There is only shit that John bought me off eBay. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, though, there's no shit on either of them. Yes, yes, hopefully. Fingers, fingers crossed on the, on the book. You never know. <laughs> so, yeah, three big items sent to me yep. from John. And we're going to go ahead and go back in the time machine to 1966. The first quarter, January through March. And this was really an interesting time for the territory. Uh, we have, over the last year and a half, we've been doing this podcast. We have covered much of the 60s, and we haven't really gone too deep in it. And from time to time, there have been tag teams. Uh, and sometimes there are regular tag teams. Sometimes there are two wrestlers that were normally singles wrestlers that team up. And then sometimes you have... Uh, a team like Louis Tillet and Jan Madrid, which, which are guys that teamed regularly in different places, but weren't a full-time tag team. But now we have not just one, but two full-time tag teams coming to the territory. And they are the Kentuckians, who at this point in time were Tiny Smith and Big Boy Brown. Later, they were known as Grizzly Smith and Luke Brown. Uh, but the Kentuckians and the Assassins. And this version of the Assassins was Tom Ernesto and Jody Hamilton. And that's pretty much well known, but we actually will have proof of that in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, aside from them, you also have Danny Hodge, Lorenzo Parente, and Joe McCarthy. And so those seven wrestlers... Uh, the Kentuckians and the Assassins, and then Hodge, Parento, and McCarthy are all main eventers in the territory based on our exclusive spot rating metric, which measures wrestlers' average position on the cards. And you can see 
uh, the spot ratings uh, for the entire roster on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And those same seven wrestlers are involved in the two biggest stories in the territory in early 1966. The first is the tag team feud between the Assassins and the Kentuckians. Now, this feud had already cycled through at least three other territories. In fact, tracing back, it started in Florida in the summer of 1962. They then had at least a few matches in Georgia in the fall. It then went to Mid-Atlantic for about six months in 1963, went back to Florida in the summer and fall, then back to Mid-Atlantic for a few months in 1964, back to Florida in 1965, and then hit Southern California, NWA Hollywood, in the summer of 1965 and you know in wrestling if it ain't broke don't fix it this feud apparently did really well because they brought it to Leroy McGurk's territory and they in most towns had a three or four week series in this territory and what's interesting is that for this particular feud the progression of the stipulation matches follows a distinct pattern across all the different towns. As we've mentioned in in the past on this podcast, feuds don't always have the same exact sequence in every single market in the territory. But here we find that as a broad general rule of thumb, this feud followed the same pattern. The first match in the series would be a, a traditional match. The second match would be what was then called a Mountaineer match, which is what we call a Lumberjack match today. The third match was dubbed a Battle to the Finish, which basically means no disqualifications, no time limits, um, must be a winner. But apparently there wasn't a winner because the fourth match in the series was a Texas Death match. And in the fourth <laughs> match... In pretty much every town, they did an injury angle with Big Boy Brown, who actually was leaving the territory to go work in Nebraska for the Dusix. But uh-huh. it's really interesting. Not only does it follow this same progression, but the um, when it happens in each town is a very distinct pattern. So the first match in the sequence always happens in Oklahoma City on Friday night. And then the following week, that first match is repeated in Tulsa, on Mondays, Little Rock on Tuesdays, Springfield on Wednesdays, and Wichita Falls on Thursdays. And then the following, then then that Friday, the second match in the series, which is the Mountaineer match, takes place in Oklahoma City. And then the following week in Tulsa, Little Rock, Springfield, and Wichita Falls. So that's something we don't often see. It actually reminds me of the Memphis territory in the 80s, where they would do live TV in Memphis. And then the following week, all the towns in the territory would get the edit, the, the edited down to 60 minute version of the previous week's Memphis show. So what we mm-hmm. do know about the TV in McGurk's territory at this time is that it is aired live in Oklahoma city on Saturday nights. So what may have happened is that that live Saturday TV set up the stipulation for Friday's live event in Oklahoma city. And then the following weekend, Every other market got that week of TV just on uh, a one-week delay. Yeah. Now, I don't know this for sure because I believe Wichita Falls actually did not have TV. And they did hmm. either radio interviews or local promos the day of the show inserted to the local news because that's how hmm. Leonard and Bob Clay ran their town. So I don't know this for a fact that these angles were specifically set up on the TV show taped in Oklahoma City. 
there's some evidence that it might have happened that way. But there's a catch. And because John, one of the problems with running weekly, a weekly loop where you have angles in the body of your television program is what happens if a show gets canceled or for some reason an advertised match doesn't happen? If everything is synced up uh, to what happens on TV, if the card is canceled or if that match doesn't happen, the angle that, that sets up the next match doesn't happen. Yeah. So what's very interesting about this is in Wichita Falls, the first match between the Assassins and Kentuckians didn't happen. And it didn't happen because the Assassins were in a car accident on the way to the show. Oh, boy. And eagle-eyed readers in uh, the town in Oklahoma where this accident made the newspapers not only knew that two wrestlers were involved in an automobile accident on the way to a match, but it named them as Tom Renesto yeah. and Jody <laughs> Hamilton. It didn't say they were the assassins. But if you were yeah. paying attention to wrestling in the territory and see wrestlers named Tom Renesto and Jody Hamilton that you don't know of, and there's two mass wrestlers, perhaps yeah. some fans put mm. two and two together. So, John, what was your earliest memory of knowing the identity of a masked man where you weren't supposed to know their identity. Huh. Earliest identity. Of them. Hmm. I think it was, I would probably have to say the mass superstar. Uh, uh, once they did the demolition thing, I think that was probably, even though the mass superstar was no longer the mass superstar, that was probably my earliest. Uh, so when he came out as a, as Axe, you said that's the mass superstar. The body type is the exact same. Is that what you're saying? Body type, body type, voice. Yeah. Okay. I figured right. it out by that. That 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 was my first my first discovery. What I, was yours? I you know I don't know my discovery in that. And I I asked you a specific question because my earliest memory of knowing the identity of a mass wrestler was Mr. R in Georgia. But again. You're supposed to know that it was, you know, oh, I see. Uh, yeah. that it was yeah. Tommy yeah. Rich. Yeah. Uh, and that, although yeah. the angle where I saw this was when it ended up uh, being Brad Armstrong <laughs> when they pulled the switcheroo. And then, of course, you know, yeah. the same thing with the machines, the Hulk machine, the junkyard machine, the animal yep. machine, the, the, the hot oh, rod yeah, machine. Yeah. But as far as that's... a mass wrestler where I could say, oh, I know without a doubt that, you know, that's I don't I honestly don't know. So I stumped myself. That's why I asked you. I, uh, I was hoping you wouldn't turn it around on me and ask me, but what do I know? This is interesting too that um, the the uh, assassins being here because I believe uh, I, having just read Jody Hamilton's Joe Hamilton's book not that long ago, I think this was the first time that Tom Ernesto and Al Lovelock had been in the same territory together since the. The great bolo kerfuffle uh, you, of years I past. Think, I think you're right because by this point in time, Lovelock had spent most of his time here. He's pretty much uh, easing his way into semi-retirement. I'm sure yeah. he made odd appearances in Amarillo or or other places, but yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and, and yeah, the, because of course, uh, Ernesto and Hamilton in Mid Atlantic they were billed as the bolos. 
the way the way the way Jody tells the story is like you know Crockett was going to bring them in as the bolos uh Lovelock and Renesto, right? And you know, Bolo Al Lovelock partner is going to be Ernesto. And they're working with the uh, the Carolinas and they stop in Amarillo to I think to work for Dory Dory Denton was the, the booker the owner of the territory at the time. And Denton offers Lovelock job as booker. And then according to Jody Hamilton Lovelock dumped dumped Tom like a greasy shirt as one does with a greasy shirt. Um, and then Ernesto made it sort of clear to Tom that he was not going to be figured in any of these booking plans. So he encouraged Ernesto to soldier onto Crockett and continue to, to, to plan on his own, do his thing. Um, but Ernesto went with the Carolina to the Carolinas, according to, to Hamilton with Al Lovelock, Lovelock's blessing to use the name, the gray bolo. Um, but then when Lovelock's booking tenure didn't plan out very well, uh, you know, and Bolo gets over as a masked heel. Um, you know, uh, Bolo or uh, Lovelock goes there and sort of like tries to extort money from both Crockett and Renesto, threatening to sue them for stealing the Bolo character. <laughs> and uh, and he actually, uh, you know, Crockett's like, oh, head sue me. Crockett knew all everybody, so the lawsuit he wasn't worried about it. But uh, Renesto rather. Uh, not Renesto, uh, Lovelock. Uh, Lovelock goes to the paper and tells them the whole story and and reveals Bolo as Tom Renesto, thinking that would blow everything, you know, and blow the gimmick. But it didn't because no one knew who Tom Renesto was. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he had been working out like to, as Tony Martin or right. other other variations, but not, not as Tom Renesto. So it's like, okay, who cares? We just want to see what the guy looks like under the mask. So Lovelock was just sort of out, out of... Lovelock was Lovelock was out of luck, just sort of uh, packed up. He was he was locked out. Lovelock <laughs> yeah. locked out. Uh, yeah, and they actually there were a couple of matches uh, where the assassins and Bola were on opposite sides of the ring at this time. Yeah. So I wonder if there was any uh, issues there. But I do also want to go back and make a note. I mentioned, of course, the first match in the four-match series in Wichita Falls did not happen. What they did in Wichita Falls the following week, they had the first regular match between the two. Then the following week, which was the third week of the cycle everywhere else, they did the Mountaineer match which was second in the series. And then the following week, they went to the blow-off, the Texas death match. So they synchronized the blow-off with the rest of the territory. And another interesting thing they did, because they ran this for four straight weeks in Tulsa, that means the Assassins and the Kentuckians would not have gotten to work Shreveport, which was a growing market for the territory. So they actually ran two shows on Sundays, two consecutive weeks in Shreveport, solely for the purpose of being able to get the Assassins and the Kentuckians. And I think they drew over 3,000 fans each time, which is a huge wow. house for Shreveport. Sadly, yeah. we don't have a lot of attendance records for this territory at this time. I think they drew a nice house of 2,000-plus in Little Rock, which had normally been drawing under 1,500. The houses in Shreveport were huge. We don't have any other numbers, but it sure seems like they did big business if they ran four straight weeks with this feud. And then even after the feud was over, when Big Boy Brown left, 
they brought Danny Hodge into team with Tiny Smith against the Assassins, and they got a few more weeks out of that. Now, why was Danny Hodge in tag team matches? Well, there may be a reason for that. Because aside from the car accident involving the Assassins, another car accident involved a wrestler in the territory, and that was Danny Hodge. Now, we all know Hodge's career ended in 1976 after he broke his neck in a car accident. Uh, There was also a time in 71 or 72 where he got in a car accident and missed a scheduled title defense, and they actually put Ramon Torres in his place and put Torres over for the belt as sort of a make-good, I guess, for Hodge not appearing. But here, Hodge wrestled in Wichita Falls on Thursday night, and then at some point, either in the late evening of Thursday or the early morning hours of Friday, Hodge got in an accident uh, on the way from Wichita Falls, either to his home in Perry or, you know, towards Oklahoma City, where the Friday show was. He was hospitalized, but he was checked out of the hospital in the afternoon, made Oklahoma City, where he was scheduled to have a match against Lorenzo Parente. Now, the week before, the two had a match for the title in Oklahoma City, and originally, newspaper reports said that Parente won the title in their first match. But then, as they're building up this match, it seems that Hodge is, is acknowledged as the champion. And what happens during this match, and I have no idea if this was if this was storyline or if this was real, but Hodge collapsed, I think, in between falls. I think after the second fall, Hodge collapsed. And they ruled Parente the winner. I'm not quite sure what was going on, but if you remember, John, in late 1965... They ran a storyline in Little Rock where Parente won a disputed victory over Hodge, and they did a deal where the title was kind of sort of held up in Little Rock only. Yep. Yep. I think that's what they were going for here because the rest of the weekend and early into the couple of days after this second match in Oklahoma City where Hodge collapsed— Hodge is still being billed as champion in other towns. In fact, they do a disputed finish Monday night in Shreveport with Hodge against Kurt Steiger. And the following night in Monroe, they do a disputed finish with Hodge against Red McKim. And in both cases, Hodge is billed as champion going in. However, after uh, by midweek, the newspapers seem to start saying that Parente's victory the previous week in Oklahoma City won him the title. So here's what I think happened. Hodge got in an accident, and this is legitimate, this is true, this is fact. They decided to use it to perhaps replicate what they did in Little Rock. And in fact, they may have already started doing that in Oklahoma City. Because the week before the accident, Parente may or may not have won the title. So I think they were going to do this title being held up storyline in every city, but Hodge's injuries from the real accident actually proved too real, and he had to take real time off. So they retroactively uh, went back and said, okay, this this win by Parente was was for the title. So that's confusing (laughs) as all get out. And in title history (laughs) records, it just simply says that 
Parente won the title from Hodge. And there's another interesting little factoid that lends credence to my theory, because within a few weeks, Parente drops the title to Joe McCarthy. Hmm. Why would they do that if they didn't think Hodge was going to be out for that long? It seems natural for him to want to come back and regain the title from the guy that beat him for it. So the fact that Parente didn't keep the title lends me to believe this was not in their plans. Mm. So this is one of those things we'll never know the real story. And and, and it's probably the most nerdiest obsession of all time to want to know these things. (laughs) But this is the type of things that I want to know because they – kept the title on Hodge and other towns and did disputed finishes with different opponents. They had already done this disputed finish, you know, leading to the title being held up in one city in November. So I just, you know, I just don't know what's going on, but it seems like this was one of those art imitating life that then art life imitates art or art imitates life or whatever. (laughs) Yes. But it seems like they tried to incorporate a real thing into a fake storyline, but then it became too real. What happens when, when, when things start being polite and start getting real, John? <laughs> it's the real world. <laughs> Oklahoma City version. Oklahoma City, baby. Because they had just, like you said, they had just done this. That's the, uh, the you know, the, the, the version of this like a, a year ago. Like, Not even. Right? It, was, it was in November of 65. So this yeah. is two months. Yeah, yeah. And but that yeah. one was only acknowledged in Little Rock. No one else, nowhere else in the territory knew about it. So I, again, I think they just were trying to do that same angle, and reality got in the way. Yeah. So this led to at least one impromptu switcheroo of the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Title. And aside from the Assassins and the Kentuckians, although I think the Assassins were. Uh, probably could have qualified as junior heavyweights at the time. Jody Hamilton was still uh, rather young and svelte. And Renesto, yep. I think, was a, a, a career lighter wrestler. But there were a few other junior heavyweights getting pushes in the territory further down the cards. Yep. Among the upper mid-carders are uh, Jerry Kozak, Argentina Zuma, and a future world junior heavyweight champion, Ramon Torres, and one previous world junior heavyweight champion. And that is Irish Mike Clancy. Yeah, baby. Now, John, Irish Mike Clancy was born in Massachusetts, shocker, in in 1924, and turned pro in the late 1940s. He spent the early years of his career mostly in the Northeast, but he migrated southwards in the mid-50s. And by the 1960s, he spent most of his time wrestling for Leroy McGurk, but also worked for Goulas and Crockett and, of course, a few other places as well. He held the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. He won it from Ed Francis in 1956 and dropped it to Angelo Savoldi in 1958. But he was well known in and around Tulsa as the owner of Irish Mike Clancy's Pizza Parlor. Yes, an Irishman opening up an Italian pizza joint. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. It it's, seems uh, like it, a recipe it, for disaster, but apparently it was not. It was it was it was disastrous on a couple of occasions, actually. Um, the on the on the the fantastic Tulsa TV Memories website, which I, I highly recommend to, to to wrestling fans and people who live or have lived in in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a, a great 
section there about people just reminiscing about the old Clancy's pizza place. So one woman there talks about working for the Clancy's and how big of a deal it was there on St. Patrick's Day, like Mrs. Clancy preparing the corned beef and cabbage four days beforehand, and the kegs and kegs of green beer they would go through. Crowds so large, they'd spill out into the parking lot. Um, and she also says that they're, they're a wonderful family to work for, which is lovely to hear. And someone else sings the praises of the Clancy family, saying they were neighbors of the Clancy's and that the Clancy's, because they had a house on the corner in the neighborhood, their yard was considerably larger than most others uh, in the neighborhood. So all the neighborhood kids would gather there and play football or whatever they would play. And you can see where a lot of people would frown upon a bunch of kids hanging out in the front lawn. But the Clancy's apparently welcomed, not only welcomed, but encouraged that behavior, which is also lovely to hear. There's another another great article from Tulsa World from uh, early 90s, where it's another guy who used to work for the Clancy's at the restaurant talks about working for them and how the, how the restaurant, this is a disaster I was talking about, the restaurant was prone, prone to flooding because it was so close to the mighty Mingo Creek. Um, and so during his, his tenure at the restaurant, it flooded on at least two separate occasions. Um, and he talks about how crazy St. Patrick's Day was there. And there's a quote from from uh, Irish Mike's wife, Terry, saying it's it's just the day to have fun. I hope no one dies. But if they do, they'll have to call Clancy's for the last sacraments because all the priests will be here. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, now, John, you talked you talked about St. Patrick's Day. The beer wasn't the only thing at Mike Clancy's pizza parlor that was green on St. Patrick's Day. Apparently, he served green pizza. Oh, my. Now, I don't know whether this was just maybe he put, you know, like like broccoli or whatever or salad on top of it uh, or used dye to, you know, use the dye that he used for the beer to make uh, the, the pizza green. But, yes, apparently you could get not only green beer on St. Patrick's Day, but also green pizza. Now, you mentioned uh, the article in the Tulsa World. That article is titled Days of Green Pizza Gone with Irish Mike. Uh, and uh, there's a line in the article that, that states – Irish Mike stood a little under six feet and was about four feet wide. His arms were as <laughs> were as stout as his legs, and he had one of those football necks. <laughs> he had one of those football necks. <laughs> he has. And you, you talked about his 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 junior heavyweight reigns. His his title reigns are great. You know, we always talk about when is a title reign or title change, not a title change. His yeah. his reigns are, are a great example. He, of those he had one like, of those one long reign. He may have done a, a brief switcheroo and get it back with Fred Blassie. And I think Nashville. Oh, wow. uh, but I think I, I think it was one of those uh, Blassie wins in controversial fashion. Uh, then they ret you know, then they go back and say, no, the title's held up pending a rematch and Clancy won. So, again, the question is, is that two reigns? Is that one reign? Who knows? Uh, but there's another yeah, article. His, though, oh, go ahead. His his because it was a fairly if you combined his reigns were like it's, it's a lot of a lot of freaking days and I have to imagine I haven't I haven't looked it up but I, I'd be curious like pre Danny Hodge at least he's got to be probably top five of for for combined combined days like there's got who else is up there like danny mcshane maybe um it also baron, depends on baron uh, leone are we starting with the alliance because if not leroy obviously yeah uh if, if we count the association 
Uh, yeah, true, true, true. But true. if it's just the alliance, and, and but again, I think that also affects McShane because I think McShane, McShane, a lot of his was pre forty seven or, or when that was. But that that's a for another edition of charting the champions. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Thinking of that. Yeah, there's another article from the Tulsa World, uh, which contains stories shared by a former Tulsa police officer with the awesome name of Billy Jack. Yeah. Who handled yeah. security in nineteen in the nineteen sixties? So John, there was a story that Billy Jack told about Mike Clancy. So go ahead and talk about that. Well, it's it, it's fascinating. Um, one of the things too that I've, I've I've in reading about Irish Mike is I don't want to call this his gimmick, but it, it's sort of like his way of uh, uh, I guess hulking up. Is what he would do is he'd be sort of taking a taking a beating, you know, uh, he'll be getting his heat and Iron Mike, not Iron Mike, Irish Mike would usually roll out to the ring floor uh, and usually blade. He would blade himself. Right. And upon seeing his own blood, uh, he would sort of go into a rage and sort of like hulk up a bit. And that was, that was how he made his comeback, was like seeing his own blood and on his hands. Um, and he mentions that there. And he talks about uh, Billy Jack, the fantastically named, talks about it. Mr. Moto, yeah, Mr. Moto, uh, starts hitting, hitting Clancy with the, uh, you know, the, the, those wooden shoes, right? Um, and a fan gets absolutely incensed at Mr. Moto for hitting Clancy with the shoe. So he, as a fan does, takes out a knife and starts walking towards the ring, telling Billy Jack, I'm going to kill Mr. Moto. <laughs> and Billy Jack was armed. I think he had like a 357 Magnum or something, right? Yeah. Um, but you don't want to, but you don't want to pull the gun out in the, in the crowd and make everybody, you know, freak out. So he's got to remain calm. So he's like, yeah, I, I don't like that Mr. Moto either. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a real heel there. I don't like him. Go get him. <laughs> so, as the, the guy goes after him with the knife and turns his back to, to Billy Jack, Billy Jack seizes that opportunity and is able to disarm him, much to the chagrin of the fans who were booing <laughs> Billy Jack from uh, preventing Mr. Moto from being stabbed. Yeah. Now, I want to add <laughs> something here. It's not Mr. Moto. Uh, I'm going to assume not Billy Mr. Jack's Moto. memory because this article was... Uh, in 2015, so this was a good 60 years, a good 50 years after the fact. Mr. Moto never worked in Tulsa. My guess huh. is it was Tojo Yamamoto who was there in early 1963 as P.Y. Chung, uh, because Billy Jack specifically huh. states that, that this wrestler was born in Hawaii but billed as being from Japan. The only other wrestler I can think of that fits the description and time frame was Tojo. And it's important that we understand that Billy Jack's memory may be a bit jarred when we talk about another story in this article. And this is a story involving Lou Thez. John, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read it, but do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm going to read this story. And if you listen to our podcast regularly and our other podcasts, you might spot where I'm going. But... One of the few times, I was talking about some of the times that Billy Jack saw actual blood in the ring. Lou Thez was wrestling Bolo 
a masked bad guy who tended to hide foreign objects in his mask. Fez threw Bolo down and intended to do a quote-unquote safe knee drop. Fez's aim was off. His knee landed on Bolo's hand. Crunch. Fez put his hands up and backed away because he didn't want to continue a match against someone who likely had broken bones. Bolo slapped Fez twice. That was the wrong thing to do, and Fez was the wrong person to slap. Fez got Bolo on the ground and knee-dropped him again, this time intentionally targeting the hand. And then, quote, when he did, and I'm right there in the ring, I'm within 10 feet of him, the bone came up and the blood shot out, and that was the end of that match, Billy Jack said. The bone was sticking up an inch and a half. That was the real thing. People got their money's worth at the time. So now that we've established that Billy Jack memory wasn't too great as far as names of wrestlers, maybe he's not talking about Bolo here. And I'm I'm almost certain he's not. I'm convinced that this is the match with Mr. Zabo where Zabo broke his hand. Um, I went back and checked. There's only one known match between Fez and Bolo in Tulsa, and that would have been in January of 1963. But just the way this is described, it matches perfectly the circumstances that we know yeah. happened during the match with Zabo, where Sabo broke his hand and couldn't continue. And we always speculated whether this was a legitimate injury or a, you know, a shoot or something gone wrong. We now may have corroboration that it started as an innocent mishap, but that Ray Vilmer, who, of course, was the mass Mr. Zabo, didn't take kindly to it and slapped his good friend, Lou Thez, twice, causing Thez to snap and legitimately break his fucking hand. Huh. Wow. So we weren't even looking for this, John, and I think you found another piece of the Mr. Zabo puzzle. And, and listeners, if you don't listen to my Wrestling History Mysteries podcast, this is what we're talking about. Uh, my months-long quest to unmask a wrestler named Mr. Zabo, who was a main eventer in this territory and then disappeared after an injury in a match with Luthez. We now have a little more, possibly, details regarding that injury wow yeah as 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 you as you as you mentioned the fez story i was like oh this is this is it this is it this is what i was talking about like i was reading this This article and i'm like and i'm going holy shit holy shit holy shit and and john doesn't even know that's what he's sending (laughs) me so i you know i was faced with a choice do i tell you or do we just keep this in my pocket and have you hopefully you were as surprised as all our listeners, but hopefully as you started to understand what I was saying, hopefully our listeners did as well. The curious case of Mr. Zabo just got a little more curious, especially when you consider that Ray Vilmer and Luthez went back decades by this point in time, both, uh, you know, in and around the St. Louis area for years. Yeah. And yeah, now we might know a little more about what happened. But let's, I, I'm still stuck on this concept of an Irishman opening up a pizza parlor. I, now, we it, do have a little more information about this parlor because uh, Clancy would run an ad for the restaurant in the local mm-hmm. wrestling program, which was amazingly named the Tulsa Tussler. 
Um, so not only is Clancy's Pizza Parlor dishing out pizza seven days a week, according to this ad, they also served spaghetti and meatballs, and they served champagne. Yeah. Which uh, and the tagline plugging the champagne is "There's a party in every glass." Mm-hmm. And also. Yeah a brand of coffee named Maryland Club Coffee. And then it says in parentheses, the coffee you would serve if you owned all the coffee in the world. (laughs) That's a pretty bold (laughs) statement. Now, John, I'm not a coffee drinker. Are you a coffee drinker? I am. I am, sadly. Yeah. Okay, so so if you owned all the coffee in the world, do you think there would be one that would so stand out amongst all the others that you would only serve that to guests? I you know, I like I like a variety myself. Or would you Um, so you try and cater the coffee to the the individual taste palette of 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 each person if you knew what they liked, you might recommend something else and you know, this and that. Depending on the meal or the pairing, you know, where maybe you like a little something a little stronger, a little lighter, a little more golden, you know, a little more robust. You know, you never know. So the Maryland Club coffee have to be pretty darn good if it's the coffee you would serve if you owned all the coffee in the world. Yeah, that's a, that's quite a tagline. Yeah. Now, Clancy's entering <laughs> career ended in the the mid to late 60s. So there's not much in the way of YouTube footage of him in action. But, John, you found some old footage of Clancy in action on the Capital Broadcasting Company's website. Now, Capital mm-hmm. owned the uh, Raleigh-based TV station WRAL. The, uh, the company was founded in Raleigh in 1937. Uh, and... Not long after starting the TV station, they were uh, they started airing the local wrestling program. I believe the first show was on January 31st, 1959. And based on who's in this footage, I'm pretty sure that's where this footage is from. This footage is from that very first episode, January 31st, 1959. But it's got Mike Clancy in action against a very tall Hans Schnabel. Yeah. Plus, it's got Jerry Christie in action twice. First versus longtime Mid-Atlantic mainstay Johnny Hydman, and then versus someone we talked about a little bit earlier, Danny McShane. Plus, it's got a ladies match with Rita Cortez versus Judy Grable. So watching this footage from 1959 TV taping in Raleigh, North Carolina, John, what, what were your thoughts when you watched some of these matches? It was... It- I, the quality is fantastic. Yes. It's some of the best quality footage I've, I've seen from stuff from that era. Um, I it's so re- refreshing and and seeing I don't know what, what do you call it, new old footage. <laughs> um, I love I love seeing that stuff. Something that's, that's that's new to my eyes that I've never seen, especially stuff in this setting, like the the the, the studio wrestling setting, because it's so clear and you could see so much and you could see yeah. how just how like I, I hate to use like insider terms, but like the, how how snug but safe these guys work. Um, you can hear, you can hear them like, like hitting each other. And it's, it's just, it's just fantastic. And the, the crowd, the, the male, the males in the crowd are wearing suits and ties, but they're, but they're getting vocal and animated. They're not, obviously they're they not screaming and yelling like the Irish McNeil boys club in 1984, no. 
but they're they're pretty vocal about it and it, it's just interesting there because they're dressed so well to see them yeah. looking like that but then to hear them responding to the matches it really is amazing and as always these things that we refer to the articles from the Tulsa newspaper these clippings uh this video footage if you follow us on Twitter you can follow me at Al gets wrestling in the days following this podcast release we will slowly uh put out this footage links to this footage links to the articles that we're talking about so keep an eye out for that we'll also post a clipping that john found from very early in mike clancy's career but what's most interesting about it isn't about clancy but it's about who else is on the card and it's someone who we mentioned last month who was part of the best christmas present i ever received so john who are we talking about that is on this advertisement uh for a show in brooklyn new york from 1949 that also features irish mike clancy i'm gonna botch his name terribly yeah uh, uh, martin cardagian i'm not sure if it's cardagian cardagian but uh the uh the owner and star of titanus and l ring for his yeah. one and only sojourn to the United States, which was in uh, 49 and maybe into early 1950, where he wrestled in the Northeast. So yeah. he's on the yeah, same yeah. card as Irish Mike Clancy. Now, John, when you sent me this, <laughs> you said you were trying to find an instance of them wrestling against one another. You may have found a couple of tag matches, but that was it. Yeah. I did a little more digging and I found Ooh. an article for a show in Lindhurst, New Jersey, on September 22nd, 1949, where they were booked in ah. a singles match against one another. However, nice. the following day's paper states that the show was rained out what? and then rescheduled for that night, and no results are available if the show even went on on its rescheduled date or not. So they oh. were booked to wrestle each other once, but we have no idea if the match actually happened because it was uh, it was an outdoor show. In Lindhurst, New Jersey, and the first night it was rained out, and then they re rescheduled it for the very next night, and maybe it happened, and maybe it didn't. That was a cool little find, though. Seeing, seeing, yeah. uh, you know, when you when you, when you scroll through a lot of the result sites, uh, it, you know, it's you just see so many names stuff. that you see elsewhere. In fact, uh, on that Mid Atlantic footage, we were talking about Jerry Christie appears in two matches. We're going to talk in a little bit, not about Jerry, but about his brother. So there, there's always all these amazing connections. Uh, you, we talked about how Ed Wiskowski showed up in all the different territories we were talking about at various times within, you know, a few week period. It's just amazing how that happens. Yep. Now, we talked about Great Bolo. He was another of the upper mid carters in the territory in the first quarter of 1966. And at this point in time, he's sort of winding down his career. He's uh, kind of sort of a babyface, but also if they needed him to work as a heel, he would work as a heel in some towns. He'd work as a babyface in others, and it would switch up on, on what's needed. In fact, I think in Joplin, Missouri, he was wrestling as a heel, but then when the assassins came in, because I don't think Danny Hodge worked Joplin, because Hodge would have been in Oklahoma City doing TV that night— they would have Bolo and Red McKim be the foils to the assassins. So Bolo was just sort of filling in on an as-needed basis and, and filling in on whatever role he needed. So you can see exactly who he was wrestling against during the quarter, as well as the full lineups for all known house shows in the territory on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. Now, further down the cards in the mid-carter category, 
and these are wrestlers with a spot rating of between 0.40 and 0.60. We've got some interesting names. We have Chuck Carbo. We have Bozo Brown, who I believe is Spaceman Frank Hickey. We have a still-in-his-rookie-year Jack Briscoe, Cowboy Bruce Kirk, future beltmaker Nikita Mulkovich, and Bobby Christie. Now, John, on this podcast, we've talked in the past about Carbo, we've talked about Briscoe, and we've talked about Mulkovich. I sure hope at some point in the future we're going to talk about Spaceman Frank Hickey, but this month, let's talk about the other two interesting names that popped up as mid-carders, and that was Bruce Kirk and and Bobby Christie. So we'll start with Bruce Kirk, originally billed as Cowboy Bruce Kirk. He began his career in the early 1960s, wrestling mostly in Arizona and Texas for a couple of years before expanding his reach. Now, John, you found an article for a show in Casa Grande, Arizona in November 1962, which has a very early Bruce Kirk match, but may also contain a match involving someone we, we just talked about a couple of minutes ago under a different name. So, John... Tell us who Bruce Kirk's opponent was on that show and who we think he actually was. Yeah, this show, they listed the semi-main event. They promised it to be a good match with a colorful Bruce Kirk, 210-pounder, wrestling against Chuck House, a 220-pound bewhiskered gent. Um, so I was like, hmm, I wonder who Chuck House could be. I can't tell um, if I like that name or if I hate that name because it it sounds like like Chuck House. It could be awesome, like a but it also restaurant. sounds like, like yeah, a- I, I, yes. <laughs> but so there was a hint in the description that led that that along with a couple of other things uh, where we're using logic and deduction and what we know to sort of fill in the blanks. So the clue in the description was that he was bewhiskered. Yeah. So that that set off the. Uh... The uh, the the crazy Chuck Carbo alarm. Yeah, me. the bewhiskered gent. Um, that was the first the first alarm that went up. The second one was Arizona, because uh, he's very closely associated with Arizona, and specifically he's very associated with Casa Grande. I believe Casa Grande is where he uh, ran had his bar restaurant that he was, I think, shot and stabbed in <laughs> on, a, on a, several occasions. Or maybe just one occasion, but that, yeah, he's very associated with that that city specifically. It's like oh, perhaps this is him. Um, so I, I tried doing some 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 digging into the 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 Chuck House, and he you know more or less does not exist yeah. aside from these few. There are a couple you know, of months worth of appearances in Arizona, but what's interesting is when you look at the documented career record of Chuck Carbo, who early in his career used the name Charles Campbell. Um, there is a gap in his career at the exact same time that Chuck House is wrestling in Arizona. Uh, in the summer of 1962, Chuck Campbell is in the upper Midwest, and then there's nothing until January of 1963, but that few-month gap lines up exactly with the only known appearances of Chuck House in Arizona. So, Hmm. it's... Quite possible. I, I, if I'm going to deal with percentages, I'd say we're somewhere above 50%, but less than two-thirds percent sure is what I would estimate 
the likelihood that Chuck House is Chuck Carbo. Yeah. It, it everything lines up. It seems to make sense. But again, considering how many wrestlers there were over the years, uh, especially how many there were that never amounted to anything, it could just be our brains uh, clicking on 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 cylinders and and wrong. So somewhere between fifty percent and sixty seven percent chance <laughs> that Chuck House was Chuck Carbo. But back to Kirk. After years traveling the territories, he changed his ring name to Frank Monty. And that's probably how most of our listeners know him as. Um, it appears he first started using that name, Frank Monty, on a full-time basis in February 1971 when he went to work for Goulas. And it was at that point in time that he also first started teaming with his most famous tag team partner, and that was Mike York. Together, they were known as the Alaskans. They teamed together for a few years in various territories, winning titles in Tennessee, Gulf Coast, and Florida, and also teaming together in Mid-Atlantic and East Texas. Now, Monty remained active through the early 1980s, and so because of that, there is some footage of him on YouTube, most of it from the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, John, you found three matches on YouTube against uh, three very interesting opponents, the Mongolian <laughs> Stomper, Roddy Piper, and Bugsy McGraw. So talk about those are three people that I, I would want to meet the, the wrestling characters of Stomper, Piper, and Bugsy in a dark alley. Now, uh, I've met Stomper. Stomper. Stomper's a great guy. I've heard Bugsy is one of the greatest guys out there, and Piper, uh, you know, it was probably running a hot or cold, but I'm saying the wrestling characters that they portrayed are three of the most crazy psychotic people in the world. And poor Frank yeah. Monty had to wrestle all of them. But the most interesting oh, yeah. find on YouTube, John is him competing in a bodybuilding <laughs> contest alongside Ricky Steamboat, Jimmy Snuka and Tony Atlas. Now this footage comes from mm -hmm. uh, Jim Cornette's garbage tapes and it's just fascinating stuff. And I got to say, Frank Monty in 1979, so he's already wrestling for almost 20 years. So he's got to be over 40 or 40 at the youngest. He yeah. is ripped. Yeah. 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 I so think, Steamboat. I, I think, yeah, they are all. Steamboat was, was just super jacked around this time. Uh and Snuka, for a guy who like hardly ever worked out, apparently was just like naturally jacked from doing Snuka stuff. I guess. Yeah. The, I, uh, so I, I wonder if they gave these guys advance, you know, some time to lean out. So was it? Uh, refresh my memory. Was this a legitimate bodybuilding competition, or was this a Crockett thing? No, this is like a legitimate thing. Like okay. not not specifically related to Crockett. I think they were just just doing it. Um, I think he was like a legit competitive bodybuilder uh like after wrestling too for a little while wow. um and uh yeah i think that was like a thing that he i've always wondered because he's i've always thought he's very good in ring i've never heard him do a promo you know uh always oh, in great shape like we said you know but it's just he's not not the not the biggest tallest guy in the world you know um like he was billed at 5'11 so who knows uh, i don't know how tall he actually was but there's that that like that match with the uh, with Bugsy from Florida. I think that was 1980, maybe, and he was down there. And Bugsy's build at 6'1". Um, but it seems like more of a, a two in, more than a two-inch height difference to me. I don't know. But but Bugsy, and Frank Monty is in like a way better shape than Bugsy McGraw. 
Like he's way more muscular, more defined, looks like a million bucks. But Bugsy just looks like bigger. Like he's just like a big, big dude. Not like fat, just a big, big dude. He, he looks like I, a I, larger I than life superstar. I, I don't like yeah. using the term superstar, but, you know, that's the thing. The, the wrestlers, even the ones that weren't in super shape, you know, Dick Murdoch looked like a guy that could beat the shit out of out of you. Uh, and, 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 you know, so yeah, Bugsy yep. McGraw and, and Piper did not, but he could talk himself into having you believe yep. that he could, or could talk you into making him want to see him get the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, but, and of course in later years, Piper looked jacked, but it's, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I didn't watch, uh, we're, we're recording this the day after game changer wrestling's event at Hammerstein. Uh, John, I'm assuming you did not watch it. Not watch it. Uh, I've but, seen some clips on the on the on the Twitter. Yeah, I've I've seen some clips. One of the things that amazed me is how many people were talking about how big Jeff Jarrett looked compared to the rest of the wrestlers on the card. And again, I'm not knocking side. I understand the world has changed, wrestling has changed. Yeah. That's that's not a diatribe, but just Jarrett was for so many years considered a small, you know, a smaller wrestler. Of course, uh, eventually he got pretty big too. But you you don't think of him as as in terms of being a giant wrestler. And yet on this show, he was head and shoulders above the rest. It's kind of like Billy Gunn in AEW. Oh, my God. And to a lesser yeah. extent, I will never forget uh, when Edge returned at the Royal Rumble, when he had that face-off with AJ Styles, he towered over AJ. Yeah. So just these wrestlers came in an era where size above all mattered more. And and if you were big or at least could portray you know, that you were larger than life in some fashion, either literally or, you know, other. That's what made you a superstar, where someone like Frank Monty, who was not a big guy who had a great physique, but, you know, not much in the way of promo ability or a natural charisma or aura. They're stuck in a role where they're going to get titles in smaller territories. And even in a bigger territory like Florida, they had to run with the titles, but they're not breaking through to that superstar level they're just going to be guys that make a living in professional wrestling and nothing more yeah he does get a nice push um in la um which is uh interesting uh like i'm not i'm not like either of us are old enough to remember frank monty in the ww wwf uh that would have been like 75, 76. He was, he was, he was there, but almost right after that run, he ends up in LA, um, which is interesting because at that time, 76, 77, the Olympic TV was being shown in New York, I think on like a week or two delay. So it's one of those early, mildly business exposing head scratchers to fans where it's like, okay, this, this guy's on WWF TV. He can't, he can't beat Francisco Flores. But out in L.A., he's beating Roddy Piper and Don Fargo <laughs> and Butcher Vachon, yeah. and he's winning all these stretcher matches. You know what is hap- what is happening? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's let's 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 talk about that because you know many wrestlers have their specialty matches: Junkyard Dog with the dog collar match, the Great Malenko with the Russian chain match, Dutch Savage with the coal miner's glove match. But according to the fall 1978 issue. Of Wrestling's Greatest Battles, which was a magazine put out yep. by Sports Review Series, Frank Monty may have had a specialty match as well. So, John, what was Frank Monty's specialty match and what was his oh-so-secret strategy to winning them? 
he, he, specialty match was the stretcher match. One of my favorite matches was the stretcher match. Specifically, I love the, uh, you know, the, 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 the ethnically charged stretcher match. I prefer, I love the Sicilian stretcher match, which is my favorite, the Bruno one. Um, uh, but yeah, this was his, his specialty. Um, and if you, you can, you can look it up as Yogi Berra would say, and he, he did win quite a few, uh, for NWA Hollywood out there. Um, and so many, there's a whole article. I think this is probably one of the few articles Frank Monty had, had written about him in his entire career. Um, you know, big headline again and again, Frank Monty stands victorious as his opponent is carried out on a stretcher. It is no secret why Monty is so successful in stretcher matches. It is one of the biggest scandals in wrestling. Of course, this article, this is one of those articles you see in the, in the magazines where it's like, we've got a bunch of photos. We need to make a story out of this. Get me a story on this. Um, and it's just a bunch of photos of Frank Monty uh, hitting Raul Mata with a stretcher over and over and over again. So that was and the strategy? That is, yeah. The, 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 last, the last paragraph, the last sentence of the uh, last two sentences of the article is there really is no secret as to why fabulous Frank Monte wins all of his stretcher matches. He cheats. <laughs> well, Hey, I, I, was, I always read that in my head in the Norm Macdonald voice, you know? Yeah. When it, when, if you can lose, if you must, but always <laughs> cheat. Always. always. Cheat. So there you go. Frank Monte, the master of the stretcher match because of his secret weapon of actually hitting the guy with the, with the, with the dang stretcher. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, a man who led two lives in wrestling first as cowboy Bruce Kirk, and then as Alaskan Frank Monte, and I guess a third as fabulous Frank Monte. So he was a fabulous Alaskan cowboy. Mm, wow. So there you He's go. Like three of the five village people all at once. <laughs> I don't think there was an Alaskan in the village people, John. I think that's a little too uh, a little too out there. Uh, for the 70s disco <laughs> culture to comprehend uh, someone being dressed up as an Alaskan. But we got a couple other of the village people as well. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, that interesting career. Uh, just, like, just like monsters, wrestlers lead such interesting lives. Yes. And there's another one uh, we're going to talk about. We mentioned him a little bit earlier. There's another mid-carder in 1966, and that is Bobby Christie. Bobby is mm-hmm. one-fourth of a wrestling family, Bobby and his brother Jerry were the nephews of Ted and Vic Christie. So why did their father not wrestle? Apparently their father was a boxer and maybe did a handful of wrestling matches, but Ted and Vic Christie had very long and successful careers as professional wrestlers and their nephews, Bobby and Jerry had some decent, you know, decent careers as well. So Jerry was the older brother by eight years. He turned pro in 1951. He was trained by Tony Morelli, Jim LaRocque, and he said he also uh, learned a lot from reading Wild Red Berry's book. Yeah. <laughs> so do you know what book this is, John? Because I hadn't heard I of it. So I did some digging around, and apparently, and this is according to Percival A. Friend, uh, Barry toured army camps during World War II, giving judo and hand-to-hand combat ex- exhibitions, and then published a book on the subject. Huh. I've heard about him traveling um, to the World War II camps. I think I remember reading about that when we talked about 
uh, Sam Avey, probably maybe like a year and a half ago. I think I remember reading about that. I didn't know he wrote a book. Interesting. Now yeah. To, so, yes. So, uh, sort of Jerry Christie learned the ropes of judo and hand-to-hand combat from Wild Redberry, got some training from Tony Morelli and Jim LaRock, and turned pro. Uh, he was drafted not long afterwards and served for two or three years in the Navy. Uh, Jerry returned to the ring uh, at the same time his younger brother was wrestling at UCLA. And in December of 1958, said younger brother, Bobby, made his pro debut in Florida, which is where Jerry had been wrestling at the time. So they teamed up in numerous territories, probably most successful in Stampede, where they won the international tag team titles, I think, four times. Uh, There's a article on slam wrestling, the always wonderful slam wrestling. And this article was written by the always amazing uh, Greg Oliver. And it's called Going Back in Time with Jerry and Bobby Christie. And John, what was your uh, favorite takeaway from this article? It's basically Jerry and Bobby being storytellers and talking about uh, some funny and interesting stories of their days in pro wrestling. This is a slam dunk for me. My favorite story is uh, Bobby. Bobby tells a funny story about working in in Houston. So uh, according to Bobby, none of the Christie's. None of the Christies had ever done well in Houston, neither neither push-wise nor pay-wise, apparently. Um, so Bobby's working on a card, packed house, they're hanging from the rafters, and he gets $15 from Paul Bosch. One five, right? One five, one five. Uh, <laughs> Bobby, is, Bobby is not happy with this payoff. Bosch overhears him complaining about it, and, and, and they come to a mutual agreement that Bobby should leave the territory. Uh, on that same night, uh, Bobby Balls of Steel Christie takes Maura Siegel's daughter out on a date. <laughs> and she says to him, uh, she says, she says, hey, why don't you go up to the office? You got to go up to the office, talk to everyone. That's how you get ahead in, 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 this, in this territory, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, ah, I don't want to be a kiss ass. I just want to get over on my own merit. You know, I don't want to have to socialize with people I don't want to socialize with. I don't want to do the politics thing. Um, so I guess they were together for a little while after that, even. And it and seems like Bobby a little says, while, but not a long while. Yes, exactly. And from what Bobby says, surely that's Morris Eagle's daughter told him that she got the feeling that after her dad passed away, I think he was not in great health. He passed away later, later this year, 1966, um, that Bosch would, would push her out and take over the territory. That's, that's what, that's what Bobby said. Um, and then he paints the picture in a way where it's like, oh, if I stuck around and married her like she wanted, I could have ended up running. I could have the Houston territory could have been mine. Right. Yeah. Because when uh, Morris passed away, he could have convinced uh, Morris's daughter, who was, you know, in in theory, his wife or close to it at that time. Yeah. No, don't let Paul take it. We can we can run this together, baby. You and me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, alas, you know, it was not Bobby, to be Bobby Christie. He's no he's no Hunter Hearst Christie, that's for sure. Um, he didn't he did not marry in. Uh, it also it doesn't really seem honestly no, no disrespect meant to him in what I'm say, about to say. It doesn't seem like he really has had uh, the political skill or desire even right. to really do so or or do or do it and succeed at it. So I don't think that I don't ultimately I don't think that would have been a good role for him. It's just an interesting what if. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, now my even for what if is all in his head. Yeah, what, what I liked about the article, he ta- they talk about a story in uh, in Stampede when Jerry 
Uh, so Jerry and Bobby were wrestling two wrestlers, and I guess they weren't really, you know, too familiar with their opponents. And one of them was a younger wrestler. So Jerry had this younger wrestler in the sleeper hold and was about to put him out for real. And the referee uh, apparently leans over to Jerry and says, uh, that's Smith Hart. You probably don't want to do this. <laughs> So, yeah, because it was it would have been a bad idea to legitimately put out uh, one of Stu's kids with a sleeper hold in Stampede. Yeah. So thankfully, the ref gave Jerry the Iggy. Yes. Thank you, ref. Uh, Now, (laughs) what I find fascinating, the two mostly worked as themselves uh, as a tag team, but they also worked uh, as a masked team called the Vigilantes. And. Mm -hmm a team named the Peace Brothers. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, I, I I don't remember which came first, but I'm wondering if there was like an incident that happened in, in real life that caused them to, you know, from, from being the Peace Brothers to turning into mass vigilantes or if they were vigilantes and then something went wrong and they decided to espouse <laughs> peace and love. I have, I have a couple theories I could share okay. with you. Okay, yeah, please. Um, <laughs> so... Apparently, the vigilantes came first. Apparently, the vigilante names named uh, came via Art Williams, who I think was a referee for the Eatons, LaBelle's uh, in L.A., also also an office guy, sort of jack of all trades for the L.A. office. And apparently, Mike LaBelle said to, to Williams, come up with a name, come up with a gimmick for these guys. Uh, and the vigilantes is what he pitched, and, and they, they ran with that. Um, so my theory is there was a popular vigilante movie that came out in 1966 called The Chase, starring Marlon Brando, Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, E.G. Marshall, and uh, Angie Dickinson. So my theory is that Art Williams goes to the movies, sees this vigilante movie. That's that's where it came from. That's my theory. I'm just I'm just throwing that one out there. I have no no reason to to believe that's 100% true. Okay. That is my theory. So um, off the top of your head, can you think of another wrestler who who portrayed diametrically opposed gimmicks? Like, for example, if if Kevin Kelly before or after playing nails also played like a, a defense attorney or a cop or something. Oh, yeah, that's tough. Oh, wow. I don't know know. that we can think of any off the top of our head, but listeners think about that and hit us up on Twitter. If you can think of a wrestler that portrayed (laughs) two different gimmicks at at different times that the two of them don't mesh well together. But what it reminded me of, John, uh, you're a big music fan. Uh, Have you ever heard of the 90s alternative group named Tripping Daisy? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so Tripping Daisy, 90s alt grunge or post grunge band. They had a minor hit called I Got a Girl. And one of the members of the band, Wes Berggren, died of an overdose in October 1999. And the band's singer and lead guitarist, Tim DeLauder or DeLaughter, in direct response uh, to his band member ODing and dying, formed a new band called the Polyphonic Spree. Uh, in his oh, search yeah. Yeah. for light in the darkness. And and this new band, it featured a rotating cast of like 50 different people, all of whom wore white robes and sang yeah. catchy <laughs> hymn-like symphonic pop melodies with Beatlesque harmonies, all and all with all the songs very positive and, and, and inspiring. So, you know, this real life tragedy 
involving his what I'm assuming, you know, not only his his band member, but almost certainly his friend as well in real life caused him to change musical and artistic directions and, and, and do something positive. And I always I, I find that story fascinating. So I, just in my head, I'm like, did something happen in the real life of Bobby and Jerry Christie to cause them uh, to switch from being vigilantes to espousing peace? I have a theory about that, too. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, reading about this, I was like, well, what kind of real life events, if any, could be behind this, this, new, this new gimmick? Um, and oddly enough, this is also, I think this is right when they go back to L.A. So I'm like, was this also Art Williams behind this one as well? And it's a good, good thing to keep in mind that... Most of the hippies in in the late sixties, early seventies wrestling are usually heels. Yep, <laughs> they're they're not they're not babies. They're heels. Um, and there was a ton of Vietnam protest stuff happening seventy one, seventy two. But the one that stands out the most to me that also probably got the most, I guess, backlash was Jane Fonda's trip to North Vietnam, right? Which happened in July of nineteen seventy two, and the Peace Brothers debut. In September '72, so ah. I was uh, I, so I'm thinking maybe maybe uh, maybe 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 they maybe that's why that's a that's a yeah that so happened. art and art that, imitating life yeah it's interesting too because they Christie they in the in the article they claim that uh, Pedro Martinez ripped off the Peace Brothers uh, when he created the Love Brothers Hartford and Reginald but I'm, honestly I think the 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 Love Brothers were around for a few years beforehand, but so it may just have been them them capitalizing on the success of the Love Brothers. True, that could be another. Could, be could another. have been that simple. It could have just been they found another team yeah. being successful and said, "Well, let's steal their gimmick," because that is a thing that happens in wrestling. Yes, yes, it is. So yeah, that was a pretty good look at the roster in 1966. A lot of wrestlers we have talked about regularly on this podcast, but also some new faces like Bobby Christie. And Bozo Brown, uh, plus the debut of uh, the Assassins. Now, we've talked about Hamilton before because Hamilton had been in the territory uh, unmasked a few times since the uh, late 50s. Uh, but Renesto hadn't been there since the mid 50s. And like you said, he was under a different name. So, yeah, this was really the first time for the Assassin and the Kentuckians. Uh, but I want to talk about the rankings for the quarter and, and how this came about, because this is something new that I started on the blog. If you recall last month, John, on the podcast, we were talking about uh, the fourth quarter of 1973 when Bob Sweetan had the highest spot rating, but he had only been there the last two weeks of the quarter. And so, you know, I, I have been trying to find a way to come up with some sort of rankings that don't just take into account the average spot rating, but also how long they were there. So I came up with a ranking system that does exactly that. Um, it's based on their week-to-week spot ratings and how many weeks they were in the territory. It also does something a little differently. I actually separate spot rating for a wrestler when he's in singles matches and then when he's in tag team matches. And if he's in tag team matches enough with the same partner, they can be rated ranked together as a team. And and instead of having like PWI having separate listings for singles wrestlers and then tag teams, I actually put all of them together in one list. So the way to interpret this list is it's basically a ranking of the most pushed acts in the territory for a given time. And it's also these ratings, which are for the first quarter of 1966, aren't the rankings 
for the territory on a specific date, for example, March 31st, 1966. It's for the entire 13-week period. So wrestlers that were there early in the quarter but left before the end of March can be included as are wrestlers who came in later. So if we look at the rankings, they're not too dissimilar from the spot, the average spot ratings. Number one is Lorenzo Parente. Number two is Joe McCarthy. Third is the Assassins. Fourth is Mike Clancy. Fifth is the Kentuckians. And sixth is Danny Hodge. So where Parente and McCarthy have an advantage is that they're both there for the entire quarter. Both the Assassins and the Kentuckians don't come in until, I think, February. I think the Assassins show up in late January and the Kentuckians show up one or two weeks later. And Danny Hodge, his ranking is affected by uh, him being out for almost two months with that injury. And when he came back, he was in some tag team matches, uh, as I mentioned, teaming with Tiny Smith. So that's why he's ranked lower than the other main event acts. Uh, But so this is something we're going to do for Uh, charting the territories going forward. Every time we cover a three-month chunk of time in the McGurk territory or other territories, we will come up with these rankings that look at all the wrestlers who are pushed as upper mid-carters or greater and sort of put them uh, in a top 10 or top 7 or top 13 list. Then the other thing, the other new thing I created was the feud length in weeks. And we talked about this on my Stats 101 podcast earlier this month. Um, It's an approximation of the length of a feud based on how many times the match occurs, where on the cards those matches happen, and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If they're bunched up uh, several in a short few-week period of time, that will have a much higher FLW score than if it's just one match every other week for a couple of months. Uh, So this is really a way of measuring feuds, and the output is meant to approximate the number of weeks the feud lasted throughout the territory. So if we look at the FLW scores for the first quarter of 1966 in the McGurk territory, number one is the Assassins versus the Kentuckians, and its FLW is 3.90 weeks. And remember, John, we said they had a four-week program in most cities and a two-week program in Shreveport. Thus, when you average those lengths together, you come up with a number very close to 3.90, because it's less than four, because Shreveport was only twice. So that's what we're doing, is we're, we're kind of approximating how long the feud lasts. It's not an exact number. And in that way, it's very similar to an advanced baseball metric called war. What is it good for? A lot, actually. Uh, War war stands for wins above replacement, and it takes all of the uh, little things a baseball player does both at the plate, on the base pass, in the field, and on the mound, and aggregates all of them together, and the output is a number meant to approximate the number of wins the team got due to this player's contributions above what it would have been if they had an average Joe at that position instead. Yeah. And by, by average like, Joe, I mean average major league you know level or high minor league level baseball player. So it's not actually measuring the number of times this guy won the game or made an outstanding play that saved a victory, but its output is something that is relatable and understandable. And that's what I wanted to create 
with FLW. So, John, you're a baseball guy like me. Do you have a favorite mm-hmm. old school stat and or a favorite new school sabermetric stat? Um, I, lo- I love the newer ones. I don't know. I don't even know if they're because they seem to like because there was VORP. Is VORP still a thing? I think or so. Is VORP re- yeah. been replaced by war? Is, is no, warp, I think older is, war is it totally different? I that I don't know. And we talk about war like it's a singular thing. There are numerous ways that yeah, that different, different sites and sources calculate war, and there are various modifications. So it's not one and thing like set war, in stone. So like VORP, war over one six two now. Oh. Yeah. So VORP is value <laughs> over replacement player, I presume. Yeah. Yeah. And there's Jaws. Remember Jaws? Is Jaws still around? Yeah. I love how, uh, so the website 538, they created a basketball metric and they specifically named it so that the acronym would be Raptor uh, because uh, they created it the year the Raptors won the title. Of course. Uh, And of course, I did the same thing with the spot rating. I uh, purposely named it statistical position over time so that its acronym would be something that we understand. But the other thing that we're doing with these advanced stats is we're, we're sort of disproving myths and old wives tales. And that's one thing that the analytics in baseball did as well. Um, old time, old school coaches and managers would always say things like, eh, a walk's as good as a hit. Well, a bunch of nerds in the late 90s and early 2000s went out and proved that no, in most cases, it's not as good as a hit. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, one of the, yeah. It's one of the, you know, I always love, like, I think someone cited this on, 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 a, on a website years ago talking about I forget which right fielder, how a certain right fielder, you know, his arm stopped, you know, so many runners from going, stretching, you know, a double to a triple or something over the course. He saved 70 runs over the the last year, you know, and now there's actually they can actually sort of do that now. They can figure this out, which is the same same thing that we're trying to do. That's what that. Yeah, they're disproving the myths or or uh, in some cases, you know proving that the, the myths are correct. Depending. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things uh, we talked to uh, many months ago on this podcast about Bugsy McGraw, Mike Davis, and in his book, he mentions wrestling Paul Orndorff every night for seven weeks straight. Well, guess what? He didn't. He wrestled Orndorff <laughs> a lot in a brief period of time, but there is nowhere near a seven week period where they're wrestling each other, either in singles or on opposite sides of a tag every single night. So this is the other thing. We always thought that when wrestlers feuded, they were wrestling against one another every night across the territory for weeks on end. We now have enough info out there to know that that's not the case. Also wrestlers always claim they used to work wrestle every night and twice on Sundays and Hulk Hogan used to claim that because of the time difference in Japan, he would actually wrestle 400 <laughs> nights a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. As as we get more and more house show data, we find that, no, a lot of wrestlers did not wrestle every night. Even if the territory ran shows every night, a lot of the preliminary wrestlers only wrestled four nights a week instead of six or seven. And a lot of the top babyface superstars, and these were usually the top babyface star that also owned and or booked the territory, they did not work a full-time schedule as well, which of course is understandable, but we're talking about guys like Fritz, Eddie Graham, uh, Stu Hart, Bill Watts, Vern Gagne. There is clear evidence that they did not wrestle as many nights as 
the other main eventers and upper mid carters in the territory. So, you know, if, if baseball has Saber metrics, I guess now wrestling has Zack Saber Jr. metrics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but when I developed this FLW yeah. stat, one of the things I did was uh, did some testing of it. I looked at not only the McGurk territory over most of the entire period between 1959 and 1981. There's a few years I didn't chart, and there's a couple of places where I handpicked just a quarter, uh, one-fourth of a calendar year. But I also looked at it across some other territories as well, just to look at the numbers and see if they sort of passed the sniff test. And I handpicked a very specific three-month chunk of time from a very specific territory to test this FLW stat because I wanted to see where the feud between Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, which of course, as we mentioned, it's it's ran on for years and years, but there was a very specific starting and ending point in 1977, where the entire feud was all contained within a calendar quarter. And so that was the third quarter of 1977 wow. in the Jarrett territory. Um, we're just a few months separated from Jarrett splitting with Goulas. Uh, that happened in March. And so now here we are oh, in yeah. the third quarter. So we're just in the summer months. So Jerry is still trying to find his groove. He, he did some really good business with Rocky Johnson, coming into feud with his top heel, Jerry Lawler. But then he captured Lightning in a bottle with Lawler's next opponent, superstar Bill Dundee. Now, recall, as we talked about in this podcast, the length of a feud is not a predetermined thing. There's no WrestleMania or pay-per-view where the angles are designed to peak at a specific date. The attendance and the, the response to the feud dictates how long it lasts. And this feud went 11 straight weeks in Memphis. Yeah. And so they had to constantly raise the stakes with the stipulations. Eventually, it started out, I think Lawler was offering uh, money if, he, if anyone could beat him twice in 15 minutes or less. I believe yeah. that was the yeah. first step. Uh, eventually, uh, they did a deal where uh, Law, so Lawler would lose the money and then he would put up his Cadillac, which in real life was actually Dundee's brand new Cadillac. Um, <laughs> and then from there, they would put up the title. So there's there's always something at stake. Each each wrestler, after I think the third or fourth week, had something at stake, either the Cadillac or the title or the money. But each wrestler had one thing at stake. And they would switch the title a couple of times. They would switch the Cadillac a couple of times. And then they would start putting people's hair up and it would be hair versus title or hair yeah. versus yeah. Cadillac. So the hair never came into play, but the feud kept drawing well and they had to keep doing it. And finally they realized somebody's got to get their freaking head shaved. And so the first <laughs> choice was Lawler's manager at the time, Mickey Poole. So they built to a step where I forget what Dundee put up, but he probably had the title at that point, maybe the Cadillac. So he put up one of those or both of those against Mickey Poole's hair Dundee wins, Poole gets his head shaved. But the feud still was drawing so well that Jarrett kept it going. And so he offered Bill Dundee $3,000 for his hair. And Dundee said yep. yes. On top of that, the week leading into this show, Jerry Lawler announces his retirement. 
And he says, after this match, I'm going to retire. Now, in reality, this was part of an angle that was going to turn Lawler babyface. But from a fan's point, you know, from a fan's point of view, this was also it was hair versus hair. With Lawler announcing ahead of time he was going to this was going to be his last match. So fans probably thought Lawler was going to lose because he's leaving. It makes all the sense in the world. So they swerved them and had Lawler win and Dundee shaved his head. But guess what? Jarrett still thought he could squeeze one more good house out of it. So he made Dundee an amazing proposition. He asked Dundee (laughs) if Bill's wife, Beverly, and this was his real wife, would be willing to get her head shaved. Bill, I guess, talked to his wife, and they came back and said, for another $3,000, she will. And they did one more week. This was the 11th week in Memphis. And sure enough, as I think our listeners know, Lawler won that match, and Dundee's wife got her head shaved. Now, so think about this. Ticket prices at the time were just a few dollars. To offer... Beverly Dundee, or the week before Bill, $3,000 plus whatever their normal payoff was, you were confident that you're going to have a lot more fans coming than if you didn't have this match. If you had a replacement match, we're talking about war wins above replacement. This could be attendance over replacement. And sure enough, uh, I don't have, let me see, I think I have the exact numbers here somewhere, uh, but these all came from Mark James's book on 19, about 1977, The War for Memphis, which is a great book. Uh, Mark has a lot of results books. He has a lot of books where he reprints old ads, but he has a few books on the Memphis territory where he looks at just one calendar year and goes into detail on what's going on. And those are really great. So I highly recommend his book, on 1977. But basically, the 11 weeks of Lawler Dundee averaged 8,600 fans per show. Wow. And I think the first show 11. after uh, was less than half. So that $3,000 oh, wow. was a, they got a huge return on their investment. I think the gate um, for the eight thousand, you know, an average eight thousand six hundred. I think the gates were around thirty thousand, and the gate after the show was less than twenty. So, mm. uh, so paying Dundee three thousand dollars, then paying his wife three thousand dollars the following week, led to about at least a ten thousand dollar increase over average attendance for the Mid South wow. Coliseum. Wow. But the feud did not last as long in the rest of the territory. It went eight weeks in Louisville. It went eight weeks in Evansville. And in all the other towns, uh, it was somewhere between one and four. We don't have anything, Hmm. any info on Tupelo. So it's possible Tupelo was a longer program too. But when you take all of that info and aggregate it, so 11 weeks in Memphis, eight in Evansville, eight in Louisville, and between one and four in a few other towns, you put all that together and the FLW for Lawler Dundee in 1977 was a 7.04, which is, and again, aside from the McGurk territory, I haven't done this extensively in other territories, but it's the second largest I've ever seen in a calendar quarter. 
And this sort of goes with what we have always believed, that Lawler-Dundee was one of the longest running feuds in history, not just the overall feud where their first matches were in 75, and I think their last match was in 2010, but this very specific chunk of time. Probably uh, these are the only one I've seen that's higher was Paul Orndor versus Ken Mantell in 1980. I think if we had more data for uh, Detroit, wouldn't surprise me if Bobo and the Sheik were there. Although I don't know if there's any one calendar quarter where they're wrestling one another this frequently. But I think yeah. if you measure their FLW over a several year period, that might be one of the biggest feuds of all time. Uh, I actually did some digging around on wrestling data. It's not easy to do it this way, but... We believe that the two wrestlers with the most singles matches against one another on WrestlingData.com are Wahoo McDaniel and Ric Flair. Hmm. But this was also over the course of several years. And a lot of that yeah. time, it wasn't a feud. It was just, you know, the two main event homesteaders happened to be in the same place at the same time. And thus, um, just by sheer numbers of it all, they're going to wrestle one another a lot. But it will be interesting to track this FLW going forward and seeing what some of the bigger feuds are yeah. at different time periods and what those numbers look like and how they change. Uh, but we also do all our other stats, uh, our spot ratings and our rankings for the Jarrett territory. Of course, Lawler and Dundee are numbers one and two in the rankings, followed by Paul Orndorff. And then the tag team of the Hollywood Blondes. And the Hollywood Blondes here are Jerry Brown and Dick Roberts. Not Buddy Roberts. Who's Dick Roberts, John? Do you know? That isn't... I I, I, I know that he is a Buddy Roberts' Real? legit brother, yes. right? Uh, Real brother? Yes. Uh, he's most known as Sonny Rogers. Yeah. But yeah. Um... But yes, this Dick Roberts was Buddy Roberts' real-life brother. Also, uh, yeah. some of the more other pushed acts were uh, the tag team of Norvell Austin and Pat Barrett, which is a weird team on paper. Uh, bad, bad Leroy Brown. The tag team of The Angel and Brute Bernard, managed by Homer Odell. Another tag team, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. Then Tio and Tapu, the Samoans. Not Afa and Sika, but the Tio and Tapu version. Followed by Tommy Rich. But there's some interesting names further down the cards. A very young Sylvester Ritter is here briefly. An even younger mm -hmm. Terry Gordy comes in during the quarter. Uh, our old friend Dr. X, Jim Osborne, is here. And there's the Riddler. The Riddler, <laughs> John. That's, yeah. I, I, is So... Correct me again if I'm wrong. The Riddler here is is David Schultz, correct? Correct. Now, do you, did what is going on here with the David Schultz? Like, did he what, what was going? Like, did he have the green bowler like Frank Gorshin? I don't have, believe like, so. Mark, I think like he just John wore a mask Aston. with it. I think he wore a mask with a question mark. I uh, I think Mark uh, James's book has a picture of him. Um, but oh, yeah, cool. it's just, it's, it, you know, this is, this is Lawler do with, with his comic book characters. Oh. There's, a, there's also an Igor, a uh, masked character named Igor, who is Ken Dillinger. There's also, this one is really interesting. There, they bill Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods as appearing. 
but it's not Tim Woods. But the ads specifically call him Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods. And this was Dick Steinborn. And this is also uh, mentioned in Mark James's book. Basically, this was a planned angle that eventually got scrapped midway through it. But the plan was for Dick Steinborn to come in under a mask and bill himself as Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods. Huh. This would lead to them bringing in Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker, and him saying, that's not Mr. Wrestling. I know Mr. Wrestling. I've teamed with him for years. That's not him. Huh. Which would then lead to Tim Woods coming in and feuding with Dick Steinborn. But this wow. all got scrapped. And while we don't know for sure why, it's possible that the reason it got scrapped was because Jimmy Valiant was so damn good. You see, part of this angle and the setup for it involved Steinborn winning the Southern Heavyweight title in a tournament, which was set up after Lawler's quote-unquote retirement. And that Lawler was going to come back and feud with him and then, I guess, bring in Johnny Walker and all this. Gotcha. They had the tournament in Memphis the week after the final blow-off of Lawler-Dundee where Beverly got her head shaved. In a first-round match, Jimmy Valiant was brought in for what at the time was just a one-off appearance to wrestle Bill Dundee. And as the story goes, Valiant got over so well during the match that Jerry Jarrett called an audible, but not but didn't have Valiant beat Dundee, had them go to a time limit draw, and then I think won a coin flip to advance, and then Valiant won the title, and then would make appearances in Memphis and Louisville for three or four weeks while he finished out in Indianapolis, because he was full-time for Dick the Bruiser at the time. But he got over so well that in just a few minutes after his first round match with Bill Dundee, Jerry Jarrett may very well have scrapped Months of angles involving Lawler, Dick Steinborn, Johnny Walker, and Tim Woods, and had Valiant wow. be the new big heel and Lawler's foil when Lawler came back from his retirement. So, wow. yeah, months and months of angles involving mass wrestlers scrapped because Boogie Woogie Man, well, he wasn't Boogie Boogie Man at that time, but because Jimmy Valiant got over so well. Wow. Um, any other wrestlers in the territory on the list? And we've got the full roster on chartingtheterritories.com. Like I mentioned, Orndorff, Rocky Johnson, Cowboy Bob Ellis shows up. Plowboy Frazier yeah. makes some appearances. Uh, we've got a young Robert Gibson, Tommy Gilbert, Jim Garvin, the Exterminators. <laughs> who I am most interested in on this list, who I love, uh, Radamias. Radamias. Aramias, he is coming. Whenever I would used to love, I was always fascinated by by his name and, and that that little uh, Radamias is coming stuff in the Memphis programs. And now, now years later, we're able to see him on YouTube. I think there's like ICW stuff with him up there on YouTube. He, he honestly, he's probably better outside the ring than in, but he just looks cool with like the face paint and even even without the face paint, he looks pretty pretty scary and intimidating. Yeah, but they, they, um, the Leroy Brown, right? Leroy Brown. What's that? This, this Leroy Brown. Leroy Brown is this Leroy Brown's rookie year? Is this like him? Him? His first time wrestling? Close, uh, close to it. Um, he's got. I mean, he's he got a nice push. He was actually feuding with Dundee before 
uh, Lawler feuded with Dundee. So he's probably had some experience under his belt by this point in time, but not a whole lot. Huh. But yeah, there's just some fascinating. In fact, the first wrestler to portray Lord Humongous is here at the time, Mike Stark. Uh, of course, this is in oh. 77, and Humongous wasn't until several years later. Armand Hussein is here. Scott Casey is here. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just an amazing, that. you know, these are people that, name three people that have never been in my kitchen. Such a weird mixture yeah. of familiar <laughs> Memphis guys, Lawler, Dundee, Hickerson, yeah. Condre, and then guys that, you know, you don't associate with Memphis, like Brute Bernard, of all people, with Homer Odell managing him is so weird and random. And that's just what I love about charting these territories because every time I cover a new territory, I always I knew going in, you know, what to expect at the top of the cards. I knew who the big stars were. But you see all these amazing random names lower in the card. And what's fun, as we mentioned earlier, sometimes they have connections to other wrestlers we talked about last month or we'll be talking about next month. Uh, it's really fascinating. And speaking of next month, next month on this podcast... We're going to look at the first quarter of 1974 in the McGurk territory. So we're going to jump forward uh, a good eight years. Uh, Danny Hodge had just finished up in December of 1973 and headed to Florida. So a new junior heavyweight babyface superstar emerges. Plus, we will look at the moves that Rip Tyler makes as Booker of the territory. And it should come as no surprise that a couple of those moves involved pushing himself pretty hard. Plus, the man credited with inventing a unique and very popular stipulation match brought it with him to this territory. We will tell you who it was and what it was next month. Also in February, we will see a new episode of Stats 101. And this episode is going to come out a few days before Valentine's Day. And it's going to take a special look at one of the most romantic wrestlers of the territorial era. Oh. As always, we hoped you, our dear listeners, learned some new things about wrestling history this month. Both John and I learn new things each and every time we prep for these. And each and every month, we both name one such thing on this month I learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, you know, usually I have a really long, involved story about a bridge or an obscure law or something. You know, not this month. Short and sweet, baby. Um Last week, I was talking uh, to AWA historian George Shire, who's a wonderful, thoroughly knowledgeable man uh, about a project I'm working on, unrelated to this podcast, but still still semi-related. It's always semi-related to this podcast, really. Uh, at some point, the, the conversation turned to the topic of Dick Byer, the destroyer, Dr. X. And thanks to George Shire, this month I learned that Dick Byer was married twice which is not in and of itself that unusual, but that both of his wives were named Wilma. Really? Yes. But I find that absolutely fascinating. Like, I don't know that I've ever known, personally known, uh, anyone named, named Wilma. It's one of those names that likely has declined in popularity since yeah. the, the 30s or 40s. Maybe the hipster millennials will, will bring it back. But anyway, two wives, both named Wilma. So that reminds me of a story of uh, <laughs> one of my college roommates. And this is a true story. It, it's also slightly not so PC um, in the same era, but I, I assure you it's 100% true. I had a roommate. He was Korean. 
his last name was Shi, and it was spelled H-S-I. This, I swear to God, this is true. And this is not the this month I learned, but this is a true story. He would go out of his way to date women named Sue. Because if they if if they got married, she would be Sushi. Um, if he met someone whose name was Sue or Susan, even if he wasn't necessarily attracted to them, he would try and and make it work. He would he would at least go out with them to see if there was anything, in the hopes that in the long run, he would marry her so she could be Sushi. I have no idea if he met his goal or not. No, that's almost like, it's like that Senior Wednesday. See, see, like that sort of. <laughs> see, Senior, yes. But <laughs> what I learned this month, I went down a rabbit hole, somehow, someway ended up wanting to learn more about two wrestlers based uh, out of Kentucky named Joe Ball and Billy Helm. They uh, wrestled in the 70s and early 80s. They're most associated with working outlaw groups in Kentucky. They actually got their start working for Goulas, but any time opposition to Goulas popped up in Kentucky... Joe Ball and Billy Helm were there, whether it was Phil Golden in the early 70s, Dale Mann a couple years later, or the Poffos after that. Wherever there was an outlaw running Louisville, Kentucky, Joe Ball and Billy Helm could be found. But they never wrestled anywhere else outside of, you know, Kentucky and, you know, whatever was in a couple hours driving distance of the state. And the reason why they both seem to have pretty solid roots in the area. Helm was a fireman and Ball was a police officer in Louisville. Ball was also an army vet and a fourth degree Knight of Columbus. Now, I've, of course, heard of the Knights of Columbus. I didn't really know what it was. So in continuing down this rabbit hole, I clicked on the, the, the link on Wikipedia for Knights of Columbus. So they are a Catholic fraternal and service organization. Probably the most famous member of the Knights of Columbus is John F. Kennedy, but there were several notable members in the sports world over the years. Babe Ruth, Mike Ditka, Vince Lombardi, Lenny Wilkins, Ron Guidry, Gil Hodges, and Connie Mack were members. Now, you may recall that Connie was a part of the thing I learned last month as he played a part in the story of Paper Tigers about uh, the first ever uh, unofficial baseball strike. Connie Mack was the opposing manager uh, on that day. But where am I going with this? Well, you see, Joe Ball was not the only professional wrestler that was a member of the Knights of Columbus. You see, while we remember him as a captain... Mr. Louis Vincent Albano was also yeah. a knight, a knight yeah. of Columbus. Oh, wow. For more I, I... fascinating and useless <laughs> trivia and information, <laughs> follow both John and I on Twitter. You can find me at Al Gets Wrestling. And of course, as I mentioned, Every mention we've made to YouTube footage of these wrestlers or articles that can be found online or pictures that John has in his archives, we will post the we will put these out on Twitter in the days following this podcast's release. So follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. And John, where can our listeners find and see your musings? Oh, find me on Twitter at at J-O-N underscore B-O-U. C-H-E-R. Um, Twitter, follow me there for, for, for quality wrestling content and occasionally non-quality non-wrestling content. Well, uh, so there's quality non-wrestling content. There's 
and there's non-quality non-wrestling content, but if it's wrestling content, it's always quality. Yes, yes, that's that's where I was going with that. Yep, yep. Thank you for clarifying. I, uh, yes, but, uh, this is this yes. is this is Hopefully. right up there with you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish type of logic. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So follow me on Twitter. Follow me on YouTube if you like, or subscribe. I guess is what you do on YouTube. I have some more UWA reels getting transferred. Hopefully in the coming months. So I think you'll get like an alert or something if if once those go up. So hopefully soon. Yeah, and on top of that, our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is updated at least twice a month, and new podcasts are released on the second and fourth Thursdays of each month. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. Listeners, thanks so much as always, and we will see you guys in February. And girls. See you next month.